Here we go. Yeah! The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. Well, Hardy Frickin' God! Earth Fox. That is a made up name. It's my gamer tag. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Yeah, baby, yeah! Here we go. Like it! Come on, like it! Subscribe to it, please! Earth Fox! Welcome back to the number one podcast in my immediate vicinity. And we have a special treat. Joining me from across the pond with the number 10 podcast in 13 countries. Host of the Missing Link on the Radio podcast from the United Kingdom. It's Missing Link. Welcome, man. Hey, how's it going? Terrific. Thank you so much for joining me and taking the time. You humble me with your presence, which sounds, oh, it. It sounds disingenuous, but uh, the number 10 podcast in 13 countries is nothing to scoff at. I recently just learned I have the number 70 podcast in Uganda. It's fantastic. And it's kind of addictive. <laughs> You'll see that number and you'll think, well, what can I do to get to number 50? I'm number skeptical 40? that it's uh, a bunch of Ugandan princes trying to find out my information so that they can ask me to help them with their inheritance. <laughs> well, as long as they're listening to the podcast, do you really care? If you catch my drip? No, no. And, and good, <laughs> good luck to them. I, I try to remain yeah. pretty anonymous for most reasons, although my mom does listen to the show, so it's That's no great. it's no mystery to her. And she thinks it's great. She thinks I could be the next Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Whoa. I think she's biased. <laughs> do you, do you yeah, know my family listens to mine as well, so do you know I Rush Limbaugh? I do not know Rush Limbaugh. No. He uh well Donald Trump gave him the a presidential medal of freedom. I think. Okay. For his efforts in conservative talk radio. I am not very familiar with him either, but I could listen to the, you know, I could identify his voice if I heard it. But he died of cancer a few years back. Damn. So we've got an eight hour time difference here. It's. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say, like, I really appreciate you having me on and getting up so early because, you know, for me, it's uh, 2.20 right now. But for you, I believe it's uh, like, what, 6.20 in the morning? Yeah, like it's, it's pretty early. I've, I've got my coffee. Have you got your tea? <laughs> I have my tea. I genuinely do have my tea right now. I was going to ask, is, is it, I mean, some people don't even drink caffeine. No, they don't. I don't know where you land in the spectrum of health and and diet but i try to keep it pretty i i try to eat clean i don't uh i don't drink much um it's it, i i wouldn't say i have an alcohol problem but that's actually an interesting stereotype i thought it would be fun yeah to go through some of the the more ridiculous stereotypes that we know of one another, and that was one that stood out to me that I wasn't aware of, that isn't particularly humorous, but that there's a bit of alcoholism over there in the in the UK. Oh, in the UK, definitely. I would say that's not like a stereotype, which isn't true. I would say that's a stereotype that's absolutely true. And we have uh, we have a fentanyl crisis in the states. Oh, that's <laughs> so. totally right. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make it? That's way? totally right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't tell which one I prefer. Um, <laughs> they both have their pros and cons. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's. I don't know if you would if you could say it was sensational, but I have a tendency to believe that most of the media coverage of anything is just meant to elicit some kind of predetermined response from yeah, the public. I totally agree. But that's kind of 
that's kind of what stereotypes are too. Do you all yeah. have, uh, you all also have uh, bad teeth? Where did that, where did that even come from? Austin Powers? That was the first I heard of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Austin, Austin Powers, I mean, uh, what's his name? Mike Myers. So Mike Myers' dad was uh, Liverpudlian from Liverpool, right? So, you know, he knew British culture really, really well. And the whole thing about bad teeth comes from the fact that uh, English people back in colonial times were obsessed with tea. That's why they colonized India and a lot of Asia, uh, because they love tea. And they put lots of sugar in their tea, and all they basically drank was tea. And if you all you drink is tea and don't brush your teeth, your teeth are going to get pretty messed up. So that's where the stereotype comes from. Well, so. it's interesting that... Uh... It would be a stereotype at all because no, I mean, there was no culture that knew about dental hygiene before a certain point. Yeah, you really raise a good point. Like, no one talks about uh, the dental hygiene of China. No one talks about the dental hygiene of, you know, Russia. But everyone's got something to say about the dental hygiene of the UK. I just pulled this up uh, from the internet. Dental hygiene has a long history with records suggesting the presence of oral health specialists in Egypt in approximately 2600 BC. Between 500 BC and 300 BC in Greece, philosopher Aristotle and physician Hippocrates wrote about various aspects of oral health, including tooth decay, gum disease, and tooth extraction. In the 1960s, some history-making firsts in dental hygiene occurred, such as the first national board exam for dental hygienists given in April 1962, and the first male dental hygienist graduated from the University of New Mexico in 1965. So it seems, it, it strikes me that it's still pretty new yeah. technology, even though they were talking about it back, you know, 4,000 years ago. That's kind of crazy how new that is. I didn't think that that would be... In 1960s, I mean, that's... In the grand scheme of things, that's not actually that... That's not actually that far away. No. In history. But I have a grand distrust for... I mean, not only anything that I read on the internet, but also... Uh, anything related to healthcare anymore. Because... Mm the COVID pandemic kind of ruined all of that for me, unfortunately. Yeah. It's a real shame because, you know, it calls into question everything that I think people know about healthcare or at least, um, you know, public healthcare like we have in the UK. Well, we had all these regular, you know, in, in the States, we have all of these regulatory agencies, like I'm sure you do in the UK. Oh, yeah. That are supposed to, you know, regulate businesses, but also make recommendations. And it's all in the interest of the people, you know, to keep us healthy and safe and living long lives. And then here comes the pandemic. And I'm, I'm fairly convinced that it was all going on prior to the pandemic. But for some strange reason, it was all on broad display that agencies like the FDA were just sort of going along with what the massive pharmaceutical companies wanted because that's where all the money is. And it, yeah. it puts kind of a dark tint on everything because you realize that there's just been this culture of influence for the sake of profit is uh, that sort of what, what are, what is the public's opinion of the regulatory agencies in the UK post pandemic? Okay. So I would say public trust in the UK in our government institutions is at, at the lowest point for, for, for a long time, probably since the seventies. And in the 70s, we had a lot of strikes. And right now in the UK, we're, we're going through this 
extremely tough situation where a lot of public or at least large organizations are having to deal with these strikes. And this is this is due to uh, partly the the response of the pandemic um, and partly from our conservative government uh, mismanaging the public uh, departments. And, you know, the whole thing just kind of screams of they don't really know what they're doing. And so, you know, me being a libertarian, I'm like, well, just get out the way then. You know what I mean? Uh, just deregulate it. Uh, because obviously you can't, you can't do it, you know, like I can't get a blood test of my local doctor anymore because there's, there's nobody there. And the waiting list is like six months or something. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and we had, we had a very interesting and a unique situation with the vaccine as well, because they partnered with Oxford University and AstraZeneca to make like a UK based vaccine and that ended up being probably one of the worst vaccines they made outside of like russia's one and china's one even at the sort of height of its you know potency i think its effective rate was about 65 percent that it would stop you getting the virus even even by their own metrics it wasn't very good compared to moderna or pfizer's one on paper and then you know considering that the pfizer moderna ones didn't seem to do much anyways uh, it kind of begs the question, what was the whole point of the AstraZeneca one, considering that that was even worse on paper? So uh, it's just, it just th- these decisions are just being made by people that have basically only one real consideration, and that is re-election. And they're willing to just do anything or just enough to get re-elected, but not much more. So there is yeah. an impression in the UK that the governments and other institutions are representing not the public's interests, but someone else's. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially with the incumbent government we have right now. Uh, the, the, because we, we had so many, we had so much stuff that came out. Like, uh, uh, So we have like ministers. So you have a cabinet. So when the party uh, with the majority wins, they form what's called a cabinet. And a cabinet is basically the prime minister which would be like your president and then uh all the ministers that take up various jobs like the head of health or the head of justice or something like that and one of those people was a guy called matt hancock who was the leader of the health during the pandemic and all this sort of stuff and he decided to write a book about his time doing that but instead of writing it himself he decided to get a ghostwriter from some journalistic outfit which was a terrible idea because he employed a journalist and gave her all of his WhatsApp uh, messages for like the past two years or something, two or three years. And what she did is just take those and just blast them out onto the press straight away. Oh. And it's honestly, you should look, you should look up, it's called the Matt Hancock WhatsApp messages because it's a really good insight into uh, actually what decisions and what their sort of tone was at the time of the pandemic, what, kind of decisions they were making and why they were making those decisions for better or for worse and what it shows is is you know boris johnson the prime minister at the time would read the news say in the times or something in the morning and then decide what his covid policy was going to be based on the news and not based off any sort of quantifiable uh decision making it was just based off what is going to make us look uh the best out of this situation and they just seem to make decisions based on themselves and thousands upon thousands of people came down to london to protest um about the vaccine situation about the covid situation the covid lockdowns because we had really stringent lockdowns here in the uk and so i think people have finally had um enough although saying that we don't have that much choice here in the uk on who to vote for so you know, next year is going to be really interesting to see who's going to vote for what and why. Has it basically returned to normal? The COVID situation? Yeah. Yeah, no one, no one cares about COVID. And the government doesn't care about COVID. Yeah, it so seems... Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's strange because, I mean, I thought... And, and many people, in, in at least 
conservative media and more uh maybe a little bit more in the conspiracy theory direction um of you know commentators and and opinion people thought that this was it this is the end of our democracy and the sky is falling and now mm. it's just going to be one pandemic after the next and you're going to have to get your booster every six months and uh everybody panic you know get get your guns and start digging your bunkers because the new world order is here it's yeah, almost sure. a, it's almost a little bit unsettling that it's all blown over and you know, here stateside, Joe Biden has ended the the COVID emergency, and mm. uh, there's not so much a push for uh, mandatory vaccines. I mean, I I kind of feel like at this point, you either you got the vaccine within the first six months that it was available, or you were never going to get it. And then monkeypox popped up for two minutes, and Everyone, you know, in, in my media circles was saying, oh, here we go. Here we go. It's the next one. Here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody line up to get your monkeypox vaccines. And then the weirdest thing happened because it almost started to turn into another AIDS situation, which mm. I mean, being that it's, oh, no, nobody panic. It's just something that affects homosexual men. And then just like that. It was gone again. Right. And there's been a bit of, uh, you know, oh, Ebola and measles and, and this and that. And it, it's but it, it seems that this is just the media trying to earn clicks. Has uh, has the media in the UK. Become less relevant to the public. I don't know about less relevant. Um, I would say the media, the interesting thing about the UK and the US is that the media kind of follows the same cadence. Although your media is a lot more polarizing than ours is. Ours is a little bit more subdued in its uh, sort of opinion. Um, you definitely get the, like different sides of the boat. Like the Guardian would be a more left wing and let's say the Daily Mail would be more of a right wing. Uh, publication but I, I, with the media becoming less relevant I, I i don't i don't think so because we have a really strong public media the bbc the people do genuinely have a decent amount of trust in and so people uh, tend to watch and engage with that as well as they tend to engage still with various public figures um you know but for example uh, one of the major figures right now uh, is around the economy is a guy called i think he's called martin lawrence uh or who does stuff around the economy because we've had this crazy you know cost of living crisis here in the uk so people are constantly trying to figure out ways to save to save money so i, I think definitely that the media is still a huge um a huge tool for, for the public here in the uk to try and figure out more about what's going on uh, in their local and sort of like more global area. But I would say the quality of that journalism has definitely declined uh, to a point where, you know, people are listening, but I don't know what kind of value they're getting from it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. there's, from my perspective, the media, you know, along with the regulatory agencies, which are kind of all, it's all just a, a stew of... I mean, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but the, the media is hand in hand with the government and the regulatory agencies in the states. And it's just the, there's there's no public trust for any of it anymore. And then, you know, Fox News fires Tucker Carlson and, and two other of its more popular hosts. And now their ratings are below CNN's, which, you know, is a polar opposite of what it was even a, a year ago, but um, you mentioned the uh, you know cost of living crisis. I I remember hearing a few months ago about people's mm. energy bills going up like something like four hundred percent in in some areas, and and I don't know that that was 
uh, specifically for the UK, but I know with the uh, energy issues in Germany and other parts of the EU, um, I was wondering if you'd experienced anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be a UK-wide thing. Um, around the time when the Ukraine situation kicked off, of course, regardless of where you get your gas, because most of our energy comes from gas uh, in the UK, uh, it's all on wholesale prices on the global market. So, you know, it doesn't really matter where you get it. You've got to pay, you know, the price. And in the globalized capitalistic society that we have, I've, there's less gas around and people still want loads of it, then the price is going to go up. And for, for us, that was exactly what happened, even though we get most of it from, from Norway and Saudi Arabia. And so most people's, ga- uh, most people's energy prices probably went up you know, between four or five times what they would usually pay. Although saying that, um, there is a scheme right now, I've forgotten the name of it, but the uh, current government um, it gives you, uh, it gives you I, I think, I'm not totally sure, um, but it's, it's uh, I think, around £400 a year or something to go towards your energy bills. And that just comes out of the... Uh, taxpayers somewhere so i think they spend about 60 billion um a year on 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 that on that sort of uh subsidy scheme to help people with their cost of living of course that thinking doesn't really work because essentially if you just give people money to spend more on energy then the energy is going to stay high but saying that in july um the global gas prices uh, are halving so uh, that situation should pretty much come to an end by then so what does the public think about that sort of subsidy in general? I mean, do they they share your opinion that it's not generally a good thing because it's just coming out of the same tax pool? They, they do not think what I think. Uh, they go, that's great, free money. Um, as most of the public do, if you give someone free money, they are going to take it and they don't realize that they are just paying it forward whether that's in inflation or in added taxes downstream, they are just going to be paying for it. I mean, that's just the situation. I'd, I'd much rather pay four times gas prices now than pay two times my gas prices and then have to pay, you know, 20% extra on inflation on that price, you know, for five years or something. It is hard to turn down free money, though. Was there any kind of, I mean, we got oh, I'd, two or three checks from the government that I think were about $1,200. And I mean, we just, you know, my wife and I put it in our savings account and said, oh, you know, rainy day fund. Was there any kind of economic stimulus like that on your side? Yeah, so we we called it, um, is this during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, because it, it was all uh, justified because of the, you know, 15 days to slow the spread effort yeah so we ours was by far the most generous and most expensive um scheme in the world by far by by a long way um i think it cost somewhere in the region of 160 odd billion and essentially the government called it the furlough scheme and the furlough scheme basically um would pay you uh, or pay your employer 80% of your salary, and the employer would pitch in the other 20%. And essentially, you, you didn't have to do anything. You would get, get your full salary up to a certain uh, amount. If you made over 100000 I think you, you didn't get any, uh, any subsidy. But basically, the government paid 80% of most of the people's wages in the UK for about a year, which is insane absolutely insane does it strike you as an effort to diminish your strength as a nation uh do i think no because if i was to think that i would have to accept the fact that they were smart enough to think about using that kind of tool to subjugate us and uh, Boris Johnson is not someone who is smart enough to think of that. He is someone that only cares about himself. And so he would have said, let's give everyone free money 
because if we do this, then they will vote for me next time because I can go up on a stage and say, and he actually did this. He actually did. He said, we gave the most generous furlough scheme in the world, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, he's just about, he was just about trying to get reelected. That is a valid point. I, I do think that the most important thing to politicians, even here in the States, or especially here in the States, is get reelected at all costs. Get reelected, right. as, especially yeah, in, right. in the branches of government that have no term limits. You know, the House of Representatives and the Senate, they can be in office as as long as they can continue to be reelected. That's why we have, you know, dementia patients like Joe Biden and, and Dianne Feinstein still serving. Yeah. But I'm of the opinion that it's more about the people funding their campaigns that are pulling the strings and mm. financing uh new candidates that are completely incompetent like John Fetterman who is who I I, I do you know John Fetterman? I don't know John Fetterman no. no. He um so he he began his Senate campaign he was elected uh, last year, and I never heard. I had never heard from him before his Senate campaign. I don't know. You know, he had this image of, uh, you know, a man for the people. You know, he was very pro worker and and you know all all good things. Uh, then he suffered a stroke, and. He is now, you know, according to conservative media outlets, he's now unable to engage in normal conversation. Uh, okay. As I as I understand it, he can he can hear you making sound, but his brain can't turn it into words. So he has to have basically, uh, you know, real life subtitles for everything. Because he can read and comprehend, but he can't comprehend from hearing you. And now the latest is that he's he really is having trouble forming sentences on his own and communicating complete thoughts. It's really sad in in my that's really sad. My honest opinion. I mean, he's he's a Democrat. I think there's probably a great number of conservatives that are going, "Yeah, screw John Fetterman. What a scumbag!" You know, he deserves what he gets. But I, I can't help but feel like there is a group of people behind him, the ones that funded his campaign, the ones that maybe pulled some strings in election offices to make sure, you know, questionable votes maybe went his way, that are going, good, he's wholly incompetent and he will do whatever we tell him to do. But I feel yeah, like 100%. that. There, it's so vulnerable. When, to be in that position as a politician, yeah. When you bring up Boris Johnson and you know caring only, I mean, what was what was the public opinion? I know he was touted as like you know Britain's Trump, and it was almost painfully obvious that that is what the political culture was going for. Or maybe that was what the public was going for. Did did. The the public, okay, so what the left media don't understand in the UK is that the UK is not an inherently super left-wing place. Um, And so, you know, they'll put out these polls, they'll put out these polls like, you know, Boris Johnson's approval rating was like 25% or something. And the the case was, is that he was insanely popular. Uh, He had the greatest, uh, he had the greatest election result for like 70 years when he got in, in 2019. Um, he was insanely popular throughout the pandemic because he was able to uh, get people to uh, think it was a good idea to lock down really, really hard. And also, he gave them loads of money. <laughs> and also, he was kind of a likable guy. He was the mayor of London beforehand. And so Boris Johnson was an incredibly popular person. And he was more of a populist figure, I would say so. And I say the biggest... Uh, the biggest thing I can draw between both Boris and Trump, because I think they're both they're both very different people. Uh, you know, they're different age groups. They have had different lives. You know, Boris is more of a journalist in background and Trump is a businessman. But I would say that the one thing that Boris and Trump do well is they are good speakers. Um, you know, 
Trump's uh, latest, uh, what was it, town hall was 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 a fantastic uh, feat in PR. Whatever you feel about the man, he absolutely rocked it at the uh, at the town hall meeting. Agreed. And yeah, and uh, and you know Boris Johnson is is absolutely the same. They're both very good speakers, and they're both very very uh, determined and self centered. They will pretty much only do things if it benefits themselves. Um, by any means uh, necessary, uh, and that's the thing I th- I think is the the parallel between. But no one else really draws these these conclusions. In the UK, it's a lot more simple. You know, so, they just think I like Boris because he seems like a you know one of us kind of thing. It makes me wonder if the the leftist media drew the comparison between Boris Johnson and Trump to create a little bit of uh disdain for boris johnson in in definitely. in the leftist circles would you agree yeah, definitely yeah definitely they they need an enemy you know without an enemy there's no one for them to rally behind so yeah i would definitely agree that if it wasn't boris johnson it would be nigel farage which is another populist figure and i really like him side. I uh, I've heard him speak a few times. Um, where, why, in your opinion, was there a lack of support for him as prime minister when they, you know, ultimately decided on Boris Johnson? Okay, what well, a lack of uh, faith in Nigel Farage. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the, the main reason is because um, Nigel Farage was a sort of one policy campaigner on the Brexit uh, vote. And that only gets you so far. Uh, and his party did really, really well. It got 19% of the vote uh, around the sort of, I can't remember when it was. I think it must have been around the 2017, 2016 um, uh, time when, when we voted for it. But the, the real reason that people didn't end up voting for it was because the conservatives said, okay, if you get us in, we will make Brexit happen. And people in their heads go, okay. These people have been in before. These people, these this party's been around for a long, long time, and so it's a bit more of a known. Uh, it's it's a little bit more of a uh, a known outcome, and so people took their votes from Nigel Farage. Nothing really to do with him, and the Conservatives just stole all of his voter base, and then the Conservatives got what they consider a Brexit done. I, I don't consider it done uh, or even a good idea, to be fair, but. Um, yeah, so that's why people didn't didn't vote for for Nigel, but he was he still is and um and was a really really popular figure. Now, what about Boris Johnson? He's now is it uh, is Rishi Sunak your prime minister now? He is now. Yeah, I mean the UK have gone through a very tumultuous time uh, in the past six months. We've had three prime ministers in the last six months. Yes, didn't. So, did you have um I don't I don't know why this is coming to mind but did you have a prime minister suddenly resign or am I thinking of something else We had the shortest prime minister in living history Right 4 months right No it was much less Oh wow It was less than a it was less than a month Did that seem suspicious or or was it warranted It was definitely warranted she was an idiot uh, she was a <laughs> she was a woman called Liz Truss Right Yes I remember the name now yes Liz Truss. Okay, so she is. She is. Um, she likes to call herself a libertarian. Uh, I, I, for, for someone that calls themselves like more of a libertarian, like me, uh, I, I just cringe because basically what she said is that she's going to make loads of tax cuts and, and reforms, which is fine, um, and then promise loads of spending without any explanation of where that would come from. Oh, whoops. and what happened? Yeah. Um, which isn't tic- particularly libertarian, really. Uh, usually, if you cut stuff, you t- tend to spend less rather than you know rack up your debt, which we're already at ninety percent of GDP. So, uh, you know, it's not like we've got much room to move, and we don't want to end up like Japan. Uh, but yeah, and so what happened after that is, um, as soon as that happened, the price of government guilt, and a government guilt is uh, a little bit like a government bond that you have where. You lend the government money, and they pay you um, 
a yield on that money. And the price of those yields are absolutely just just created overnight because if you if if you are wanting money from the government and suddenly the government are saying they're going to spend more money than they're going to make then where are they going to get the money to pay the guilt and after that happened the pension uh, funds in the country that were buying guilts because it's a like a super usually a super safe investment the pension companies would buy these and suddenly the pension funds were having to put up collateral against these guilts and they were going to go bust. I mean, literally thousands of people, almost millions of people would have lost their pensions if the Bank of England hadn't come in and stepped in. And this was all because Liz Truss made one announcement. That's, that sounds a lot like, um, well, when you, when you talk about the gilts, it sounds like uh, treasury bonds here. That's it, yes. What, what we refer to as treasury bonds here in the States. But... Um, the uh, it, the situation sounds very similar to what's happening in the in the United States with the debt ceiling and the uh, just sort of the modern what do they call it Mon- modern monetary policy or modern modern monetary theory, which yeah. is basically just hey we made up this entire currency system to begin with let's just print all the money that we want and then when the value of our currency completely craters we'll just ditch it and flip everything over to a uh, central bank digital currency is there a talk of of a centralized digital currency in the uk yeah there is actually i i think um i think there are plans to make some kind of digital pound in the uk I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Um, I think it's going to be based on some kind of blockchain technology. It was probably, I can tell you right now, though. Probably a pretty big setback to have, I mean, to go from the euro when it mm. was a, you know, a united EU to now we have Brexit and, you know, the Brits are back on the pound. We always had the pound. We still, we've always had the pound. So how did that work? With yeah, the- so this is this is um this is when you start to realize how bad of a situation the Brexit thing was, was because and yeah, go tell you that go into that because I'm I'm yeah. not I know I know there was it it seemed like uh you know conservatives and libertarians now now what is that this this question has been burning in my brain and I just haven't asked because I didn't want to derail where the conversation was going but the political parties. There's yes. uh, the the Lib Dems, and, yes. and then there's Labour, and yes. there's Tories, yes. and I have, uh, how do those compare to, you know, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green parties that we have? I mean, it's basically just a two-party system in the States, but there are other parties that make an effort. How does that, how do the, all the parties compare to each other? Okay, so I would say, well, first of all, our parties are not allowed to be lobbied by corporate entities. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier uh, to figure out motives behind what people are doing. And therefore it's easier to see what the parties stand for. So, so the Labour Party is typically a more left-wing leaning party and, and uh, not necessarily like a libertarian left, you know, like a massive e- inclusivity party, but I would say they're typically more of a party that would support things like workers' unions and other socialistic type policies like that. Makes and then sense. The cons- yeah, and so then the Conservative Party would be a more right-wing party um, that by its name is is more conservative believes in more f- conservative fiscal policy and more conservative you know family life and 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 that kind of stuff and then we have a green party as well we have the scottish national party we have uh, Sinn Féin for uh, wales uh, and we have uh, like the dup for northern ireland and there's a fair few other ones that that come and go but uh, the main two parties that really matter similar to your two party system is 
is the Conservatives and, and, and Labour, and they have that typical sort of left and right wing, you know, uh, wombo combo uh, battle every Wednesday uh, at 12 p.m. So what is the sort of doctrine of the Tory party? Uh, well, I, I think it used to be, um, it used to be like, a, you know, like a pro-business party uh, and a pro, you know, conservative thought of keeping government small, smallish and uh, conserving, uh, conserving uh, British values. Um, and so that's typically what it's it's supposed to be. These days, though, I couldn't tell you. I mean, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, that were both, you know, Rishi Sunak was the chancellor who looked after the budgets and stuff under Boris Johnson. They're, they're very similar in their politics, which they're not very conservative people. Um, they spend loads of money. Uh, they aren't very conservative in their in their personal lives, really. Um they're more just on their own and they use the Conservative Party as a sort of a vessel to to, to get elected. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't say the Conservative Party is is particularly conservative. I mean, they spend 500 million quid a year in inclusivity training. I mean, that's not a particularly conservative thing uh, to do. Uh, so, yeah, but Labour is, a, it, it, these days, Labour is, is much easier to, to pin out where they are. They're sort of more centre-left right now since uh, they've had Keir Starmer as leader. So what party do you most closely relate to? Man, that sucks. I used to vote Lib Dem a lot because I liked their policies. Um, I don't think I would stick with a singular party because I kind of read what their manifestos are, who my local MP is going to be, um, and then vote there. But next year, oh, man, I have no idea who I'm going to vote for. The choices are really bad. You've you've got the Conservatives, which have done a terrible job of running the last at least at least the last five years, and they've made a right hash of Brexit. And then you know, Labour, their only real policies is just to spend more money. Uh, that's usually what they, you know, last time with Jeremy Corbyn, he was talking about buying the internet, you know, <laughs> nationalising the internet. I mean. I, how can you how can you even speak like this? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, it's really interesting how these issues they seem to pertain to all of the Western world. And with things like, you know, bad fiscal policy, it mm. seems, and this this is my conspiracy theory brain working here, but it seems to me that there could be an effort to weaken the western world because it's it's all the same over here we have the the restrict act um oh i that, heard about that that's yeah. coming to be voted on in, you know at, at some point it's kind of fallen out of the headlines now and i haven't mm. checked back in to see what's been happening with it but in canada they passed uh bill c11 which is you know, I'm I'm unfamiliar, but it seems similarly to be another internet crackdown piece of, of legislation. And this, in, in my opinion, this all comes from the sort of failure of the COVID efforts, which, which in my opinion was all, I mean, now that we know what we know about the virus itself, you know, 99.9% .9 survivable doesn't really affect children, mainly hurts, mm -hmm. you know, the people with pre-existing conditions and the very elderly are the people that really need to, or, you, know, or, you know, are the groups that need to be the most concerned about it. What came along with COVID was, oh, the crackdown on disinformation, but it failed and it failed largely in my part and mm -hmm. in my opinion, because we have the internet. We yes. have these terrific pieces of of free technology that we can use to communicate and i mean i don't know if you heard but back in the days of the war on terror we were learning that oh the, the terrorists are using playstation voice chat to communicate with each other because it's encrypted and it's you know it's just just this kind of piece of fringe technology that nobody really even thought to monitor 
then that has all evolved into this massive effort to control all of the information. So my coming from sort of an almost an anarchist opinion of, of what the role of government should be in our lives. I feel like the government depends on the ignorance of the people and they rely on a complicit mainstream media to not tell us what they're up to. So, so when it comes to something like Brexit, I wonder what was, what, what were some of the, uh, the big scary red flags that the media was pushing out in the media. And now that it's all, well, like you, like you said, you don't feel that it's completely over. And I don't think it's completely over either because I think the goal is one world government. Yeah. But are you seeing the big scary monsters that the media was claiming were going to come crawling out from under the bed once the Brexit was completed? Yeah, so I mean, we've already we've already experienced some of the things that was we've talked about. You know, not not everything, um, but we've already we've already experienced some of the things that that were talked about about people that actually knew what was going to happen because people didn't understand what the EU is. The EU is a trading block. It's not a it's not a governmental entity. It's a trading block for goods and services. And uh, as a nation, if you leave that, then you have to have things in place uh, in order to make that transition easy and to make your trade. Because, you know, more than 30% of our GDP uh, comes from trade with the EU. So it's, you know, it's, in, it's an incredibly, um, uh, it, it's an incredibly important thing that we, that we get right if we're going to do it. And we decided that we we're going to do it, and I completely respect that as someone that respects democracy. I think, uh, you know, I think people should be able to vote for what they believe in, and if they believe we should leave the EU, then that's then that's fair enough. Um, but some of the things that uh, were mentioned, um, which are just very obvious things, which is since we're leaving a free trading uh, uh, union, then we would immediate, almost immediately have um, just knock-on effects, uh, and this affected me personally. And affected loads of other people personally um, when the because it didn't happen when the vote happened, right? And that's the, what people don't understand is when the vote happened, we didn't leave the EU, right? They had to do a transition period, and then we left. And then people go, "Well, nothing bad happened," and it's like, "Well, we're still in the EU, and we officially left." I think in 2020, almost four years after um, after the vote happened. And what ended up happening is is just super simple things like. Uh, value-added tax or VAT that you pay on just became an insanely complicated process. And businesses in the UK that trade in the EU, suddenly their costs went up by like 20%. And then you had this situation where you're basically paying more for goods that you didn't have to pay more for anyways. And now they've got to this, now, I mean, really recently, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has had to come out and say, the plan that they were going to do to, you know, repeal all the EU laws in the UK, they're not going to do because they've realised that all these EU laws are so ingrained within our society that it's like genuinely a, a legal risk to try and reform all of them to a point where really they'd just be exactly the same because with all the sort of laws that the EU, you know, emplaced on us in terms of, and it's not like laws like you know, a speed limit or this is how much an apple costs. It's laws around like food quality or, you know, uh, sort of content guidelines, like something like GDPR, like data protection or something. The UK never voted against them one time. So you've got to ask yourself, like if you're an MEP, a minister in the European Parliament, and you never vote for something, never vote for something down, and then you go, I want to leave. I mean, it's just completely contradictory. And now we're in this position where we are literally worried about terrorism in Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement. And Joe Biden's had to come down and calm everything down for him because 
Northern Ireland is in this really weird position where they want to be part of the UK, but because we've left the EU, there has to be a border between the EU, which is the Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland. But if you put a border there, technically, that's like splitting it in half, and the unionists go crazy, and the terrorists on the other side go crazy. They hate that. They do not want a border there. They will literally blow shit up if there's a border there. So they had to put the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And then the Unionist went, well, you can't do that because we're supposed to be part of the UK. So they're in this really weird position where the Northern Ireland is both in the EU and in the UK in some weird situation. It's so complicated. It's such a waste of time. We would have been better off being still in the EU and, you know, having the sort of great benefits, which is the free trade and the free movement, because just as, you know, most of our immigration, which was one of the major topics of the Brexit thing, it doesn't even come from the EU. Most of our, uh, most of our immigration comes from places like Pakistan, India, places outside the EU. This is, you know, it's just a, it's a non-topic. It's just a complete non-topic. So I think people were sold down the river on this. And now we're in a situation where no one wants to say, maybe we should have, uh, maybe we should have, uh, stayed in and changed it from the inside or you know held them to ransom we'll leave if you don't change this that would have even been better to do that but to essentially just go well you know uh we're going to leave a trading block and then complain that the eu isn't giving us free trading rights while not giving us free movement of people i mean that's just in you know the libertarian me is just like bro it was actually less regulation being inside the eu than it is now because if i have to do business in europe i have to uh i have to go by the uk laws which there are lots of and i have to go by the eu laws so it's like a double whammy i mean it's just the worst situation it much better like either being inside the eu or just completely cutting ourselves off from everything uh, and just going back to sticks and rocks or something <laughs> So immigration, you brought up immigration. It's a hot button topic in, well, it seems like it's always a hot button topic in the States. Um, mm. Has has the Brexit had a, well, what's your general opinion on immigration and has the Brexit had a positive or negative Im- impact on, on immigration in general, in your opinion? Uh, Brexit has had a negligible impact on immigration because, as I said, most of our immigrants don't even come from Europe and therefore they wouldn't have to deal with European uh, free free movement. Um, they would still have to get, you know, they would still have to come to the UK border and fill out a visa and do all that kind of stuff and get a green card. You know, illegal immigration is the highest it's ever been since Brexit. Um, I think we had something ridiculous like 50,000 and our total immigration is the highest it's ever been. We had a net immigration of 500,000 people this year. And so, you know, whichever way you feel about immigration, the fact that it's gone up since Brexit, which some people said was the whole reason of voting for it, it, it kind of it kind of pulls this whole thing into question. Well, you know, I mean, personally, I think they pushed the Brexit thing because certain Tories wanted more specific control over specific laws that the EU had control of, like certain taxes on goods and fiscal policy, you know, from like movement of currency and stuff, um, and to which they will do very, very well uh, out of that. But as far as we're concerned, the public is just a straight L. It's just a loss. And the immigration's the same, if not even more. So if you don't like immigration, it's a, not, it's a loss in that respect as well. Well, that's interesting. It, it, I mean... It is, as you said, mo- mostly about trade than yes. it is than it is about anything else. Does it? Do you think it was the the Brexit effort was more about a fear of what could happen than than a disdain for what was actually happening? Uh, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I mean, it was like. Yeah, I mean, um, because here in the states, the the support for Brexit came mostly from oh, it's 
you know, it's it's all the bureaucrats in Brussels that are unelected and trying to tell all the other European countries what to do. And it's just not right. And we got to have Brexit. Yeah, for sure. And that was one of the main things that people were parroting because they they were saying that um, basically what they were trying to get at is that it is is this idea that we we had no electoral control over our own laws. And, you know, most people are not switched on politically. So when they hear that, they think, well, holy shit, you know, I vote every four or five years and that vote should mean something. And so I want to be out out of the EU because, you know, I want to have some control over the laws in my country. And that's a perfectly valid opinion to have. The problem with the starting information is the fact that we have something called um, Parliament. And there's like 635 people in there that design and vote on all the laws in the UK. Uh, And... (laughs) <laughs> we have we have pretty much full autonomy we had we had a, a we had our own currency we had full autonomy over our laws we could veto european laws we could we could do emergency handbrakes on immigration we could vote down policies as an mep and we could vote for meps ministers in the european parliament we i voted for for some right before the brexit thing kicked off i actually voted for who i wanted to be in the you know, a minister in the European Parliament, uh, and now we get none of that. You know, so we still have to kowtow to European laws now because if we want to trade with them, they're not going to accept or give us goods unless we accept their trading laws. But now we can't even vote on them as an MEP. And this is one of the reasons. With it's probably my most sort of leftist opinion. Uh, because like you, I identify as a you know libertarian. I believe in very limited government, uh, etc. But I feel like having a, a borderless society would be, I mean, could potentially be very positive for you know a lot of the reasons that you've just stated in your arguments in in favor of of remaining in in the eu because i feel like with immigration at, at least in the united states i feel like the open borders policy is perpetuated by business owners you know agricultural businesses that want to in- exploit cheap labor the the cheap labor of the migrants and if if we could in fact have a one world government and one currency and uh you know wage standards and living standards that extended all the way across the planet it would resolve a lot of the problems that we have i mean this is why so many american businesses shipped all of their operations over to china where china you know engages in currency manipulation and has basically i mean i don't know where you come down on the the sensational coverage of the the uyghur concentration camps that they have in china but the, i mean the point being it, it it all exists because the lower your overhead the higher your profits right yeah absolutely i mean if you're like a super libertarian capitalist you know globalized singular one government would be the dream it would be the absolute dream because you only have to do bureaucracy for one set of rules you have one currency to worry about and uh you know be a completely open society so you can hire from people wherever you like i mean that's that's like the capitalist dream pretty much and if we had if we had an informed public like if if we had a reliable if, if we had a media that was in fact working for the people instead of working for the corporations that support it we wouldn't need a large federal government to regulate these giant corporations because we could let the market decide like, oh, you know, Amazon pays slave wages and, you know, mistreats its employees and, you know, engages in all of this unsavory behavior. 
hey, everyone, quit spending your money at Amazon. Then Amazon is forced to retool its business practices and work on its public image and become a better company or die. But when the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, you're never going to see any negative stories about, you know, Amazon, the corporation, because they're they're not going to disrespect the person signing their paychecks. No, absolutely not. No. And there's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's plenty of those figures. I mean, you know, even Rupert Murdoch uh, is a huge figure that's, that's pretty similar. Um, you know, no one will say much of a bad word against him because he yeah. owns most of the, uh, he owns a great deal of, of media and entertainment. And he just got bent over by Dominion voting systems. And it, it just recently came out that the, uh, the reason he had to fire Tucker Carlson is because it was part of the settlement. Dominion Voting Systems was going to sue Fox News for defamation to the tune of $1.6 billion and then settled for about half that in exchange for, uh, you know, apparently these other stipulations that involved getting rid of some of their, uh, highest drawing talent and it was crazy they so they agreed to this settlement which would only cost them half of what they could have potentially lost in a lawsuit then then their market value tanked by a billion dollars which basically ended up in fox in fox news losing uh just as much if not more than they would have lost if they would have taken the suit to trial and gone through discovery and all of that and then lost the case that's crazy it's, so it's let me really ask you bizarre. this like let, let me ask you this um what do you think the americans like opinion the american public's opinion of tucker carlson is since all this is has happened because you know we have no access to to like american sort of prime time news and stuff here in the uk well I feel like recently the, the the conservative beast or the libertarian beast is is finally starting to wake up and um I don't know how much more time you have we we might have to branch into a you know do a a sequel or something mm. but um it sounds fun it started with I think it started with the the Bud Light debacle are you familiar with that I'm, yeah, I am familiar with this, yeah. I mean, I think everyone, myself included, you know, political pundits and, and podcast personalities were pretty astonished that the conservative right in this country took such a stand against Bud Light, which I was in favor for not because I didn't, like, I had any negative feelings against Dylan Mulvaney, I I don't know him personally. I think he's uh, doing himself a disservice in a lot of the content that he puts out there. But what upset me was that Bud, in my opinion, Bud Light, you know, their parent company, Anheuser Busch, InBev, which is headquartered in Belgium, not even an American company, mm. they don't care truly about the trans movement about any no, cultural any cultural issues but they're they're going to trot out and partner with this social media influencer to pander and that was yeah. what that's what did it for me my opinion is just shut up and make beer like who who cares like you you I... don't you don't care like you don't care it's painfully obvious so f you with your yeah, with, I... with your trans you know marketing efforts I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, the recent outrage against Bud Light is completely uh, valid. And I think companies should look at it uh, as a way to, uh, you know, refresh their brains on why they exist as a company. You know, companies are there to make money and not to be uh, political mouthpieces because, 
you know, as much as they, you know, want to listen to the to the WEF and get their ESG score up. Oh yeah, um, people are. I think a lot of CEOs, a lot of um, and chiefs are starting to realize uh, that the more you chase an ESG score, the less money you actually make. You don't make any more money. You just get a higher ESG score, which is nothing. I mean, it's nothing. And, you know, a company is there to make money. Bud Light is there to sell beer. And they should focus on selling as much Bud Light to as many people as as possible. And, you know, uh, is, you know, you can't tell me that they sat down with someone and said, okay, we're going to do this and this is going to help us sell more beer. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just a ridiculous notion. Um, well, and I think, so I think, yeah, I think it's called, um, impact investment. This is way, this is how the banks are selling it to these corporations. And this is what it's called when they, they analyze the, the ESG score. It's, oh, it's your, your impact mm. investment, your, your campaigns to push this culture that we want to see out into the public your your impact investment yeah and it's it's the way i understand the the esg thing you know what let's let's put a pin in that and we'll we'll cue the outro music sure well thank you very much for joining me this was great we should definitely do a part two there was a lot i i wanted to dig into the the just i mean not even just the trans ideology but the gender they're the sexual ideology as it persists across Mm. the western world and then ukraine which we didn't get into either but uh i genuinely appreciate you taking the time i had a good had a good time and uh, i want to i had a lot of fun I want to send uh, my listeners to your podcast, Missing Link on the Radio. It's uh, We didn't even talk about that, but uh, you're a house DJ uh, with a, a brilliant idea. And, oh, thank you uh, very much. I enjoy it. I know nothing about house music, but uh, I found myself really vibing with it. And uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I think I, I definitely want to ask you more about it next time uh, do you have I any uh, yeah do you have any final thoughts no i just want to say you know thank you very much for having me as well um it being so early after uh, you in the morning um and uh yeah i, I can't wait to to hear this back and uh, share it out to a few people that i think would really appreciate it um so yeah thank you very much for having me again Subscribe to the Missing Link on the Radio podcast and uh, subscribe to the Earthbox podcast if you haven't yet. uh, More excellent content to come. I'll be back.